Fitted. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear myself. Brilliant. It is, um, it is, it is great being here with you. Just greetings from Lichpins. There are quite a few of the faces here that I, we do recognize and people that we've come to know over the years and that we love. And so it's, um, it is great being with you today. I do not know how it happened that I got this passage. I'm, I'm told that it was uh, just in the Lord's sovereignty that it worked out that way. But there's probably not a more controversial, more difficult, well, there's probably one or two others, more difficult than this one in the New Testament, definitely not in the book of Corinthians. Uh, and I was uh, fortunate enough to get it, which, is, um, which I'm very excited about because the difficult passages are usually the good ones. That's the ones where there's lots of meat on the bones. And so we're going to consider it together this morning. Can I, can I ask you, I'm not exactly sure what the vibe is here at Rooted and how you do things. Can I ask you that, please, if you haven't got a Bible with you, do take out your phone. Hopefully you've got a, maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone. If you do have one, open your phone. Can I ask you to keep that open the whole time? I'm going to try and work through the passage precisely because it is such a difficult, controversial subject that we'll be considering today, I want you to know that this is not my ideas, this is what God is saying in His Word, and that you can sort of check whether I'm just sort of making stuff up, up, stuff up for, my, for myself and for you, or whether this, is, um, whether this is what God is indeed saying to us in 2017 in Pretoria, and specifically here at um, Rooted. And so Ona has prayed, I'm not going to pray again, I'll pray afterwards. I'm also not, I'm not going to read the passage beforehand. I will read it as we go through it. Um, so you keep that open and then, um, and then we'll see what the Lord has in store for all of us today. All right, so, um, <coughs> excuse me about that. Friends, the, <coughs> the word discipline, the word discipline is a word that we're all familiar with. Uh, when we hear that word discipline, it is, um, we immediately think of the parent, don't we? We think of the teacher uh, or the parent punishing a child for their wrong behavior. We can all probably recall a time in your own life where you were disciplined. It might have been your own parents. It might have been a teacher. It might even be currently at work or in a work situation where you were disciplined in, a, you know, in, the, in the work environment. And it's never is it an a enjoyable experience for us to be disciplined. Now, now, it's true that the word discipline does have a punitive aspect to it. In other words, whenever we think of discipline, and we're right to think this way, we think of punishment to some extent. And, and that is true, but it's important for us to realize that the word discipline originates from a Latin word, the word disciplina, which um, refers to teaching. Discipline always refers to teaching or to instruction. In other words... The goal, friends, and this is again important for us to, to remember from the outset, the goal of discipline is always a positive one. Yes, there is punishment involved, but it is never punishment for the sake of hurting. It is always punishment for the sake of healing. Discipline is never for the sake of breaking down a person. It is always for the sake of building up someone. Now, another interesting fact that you might not be aware of is that the word disciple, which is, of course, the most uh, prominent, the, the word that is most often used in the New Testament to describe Jesus' disciples, his followers, the word disciple stemmed from exactly the same word as the word discipline, uh, from the same Latin word. 
And so to be a disciple simply means that you are a pupil, that you are somebody who is in the process of getting to know, you are learning the ways of Jesus. That's what the word means, and this is the reason why I point that out to us. <coughs> Friends, and please hear me out on this. You cannot, you cannot separate discipleship and discipline. You cannot separate the two from each other. There is no such thing, according to the Bible, according to the New Testament, as a disciple of Jesus, someone who is in the school of getting to know Jesus, who does not require and experience God's loving discipline at times. And I mentioned that to us, and I start there, friends, because that is what our passage today is all about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is what 1 Corinthians 5 is all about. But before we dig in to that passage, and I still want to encourage you to keep that passage open, we'll, we'll dig into it uh, in a moment from now. But it's important for us first to familiarize ourselves again with what you have seen thus far in the book of Corinthians. And I want to start by taking us back right to the to the second verse in the book, because this is the most important verse, I believe, in all of 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And so notice with me there, just how Paul starts his letter as he's speaking to, yes, and I love the title for your series, This Messy Church. But Paul started his letter and he said to them, listen here, you are the church of God that is in Corinth. In other words, this church in Corinth does not belong to your pastor, it belongs to God. And he is the one who, um, who this church belongs to, and the church in Corinth exists for his glory. Notice there he goes on to say in 1 verse 2, uh, he describes the church as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified means that you have already become holy. Because of the work of Jesus, you are already a holy people, set apart for God. But then do you notice further how he describes them? He says, but you're also called as saints. So you, you're already holy because of Jesus. Now you are called to holiness. You are called to be that who you are already in Jesus. Now the question is, why does Paul start his letter this way? Why does Paul start his letter saying, listen, you've been made holy by Jesus and you as Christians have been called, because you belong to God, you've been called to live holy lives. Why does Paul start his letter the way the answer is, as you've probably seen this far, because that was not true of the church in Corinth. They, these sanctified ones, weren't living as the called saints. They weren't living holy lives. And so what you've seen this far in chapter 1 to 4 is that already this church was known for, they were marked by divisions and by factions. They were known for the disunity and the grumbling within the church. There was this desire and pursuit for worldly wisdom, worldly wealth, worldly status that characterized the church in Corinth. And if you stick around in the rest of the book of, uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 going forward, you will see that within this church, among these Christians, there were lawsuits among each other. They were known for their sexual immorality. There was idolatry. You'll see that later in the book in chapter 10. They were neglecting the needs of each other and the needs in the church. They even, can you believe it, used their spiritual gifts not to exalt Jesus but to exalt themselves. That's the kind of church that the church in Corinth was for. And for that reason, friends, the question that we are confronted with over and over as you read the book of 1 Corinthians 
the, the, the question is constantly this. What will change them? What will help the church in Corinth to be more like Jesus? They're messy, yes, but what will make them who are already the sanctified ones more saintly? What will make them more and more holy? And that is what we will see specifically then in today's passage. One of the major reasons, not the only answer, not the only thing that will make Christians more holy, but here is one of the answers that we're given in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So have a look with me there. Open your, thank you sir, um, open your, your passage there. And have a look there with me at uh, verse 1. Where Paul tells us about the report. And so verse 1, Paul says there that it is actually reported. And even the language there, it's actually reported. says, listen, this is unbelievable. I've heard something and it is almost too not good to be too bad to be true, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, that is, in the midst, in the church community, behavior, says Paul, of a kind that is not even tolerated, even among the sexually promiscuous pagans in Corinth. Uh, what exactly has been reported? Well, he says here that there's a guy, can you believe it, in the church who is sleeping with his dad's new wife. I mean, this is Jerry Springer the beginning of the Jerry Springer show, right there in Corinth. Notice, however, the thing that really gets Paul's back up here is not only that there's a guy who's professing to be a believer, but who's sleeping around and committing incest. The real thing that gets to him in verse 1 there is that the church knows about it. That is what he's implying there. The rest of the church knows about this, and they're tolerating it. They're tolerating it. And so, what should they do about it? Well, have a look at verse 2. We've seen the report. See now the response in verse 2. Paul says in verse 2 that instead of being arrogant, these Christians then, Corinth, were very arrogant, boastful, walking around as if they are just the coolest people in Corinth. And he says to them, instead of being arrogant, this is how you ought to respond. You ought to be broken, says Paul. You ought to be ashamed of the sin in, in your midst. So much so, says Paul, that you should mourn, you should weep over what is happening in the lives, in the fellowship, in the church, in Corinth. And then he tells them what to do. Have a look there at verse 2. He says to them, this is what you ought to do. Remove this man, this man from verse 1, remove this man from among you. Remove this man from among you. In other words, is Paul is saying, this man should be prohibited from partaking in the worship and in the fellowship of the church community. The old school word for what Paul is calling for here is church discipline. That's the word that the church has used over the last 2,000 years for what we find in this passage here in 1 Corinthians 5. He's calling the church to... Um, for this man to be placed under church discipline. Now, as I say those words, I know that maybe you're sitting here today, you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, but when you hear this, you think, I mean, this is crazy. This is absolutely cra crazy. This is archaic. It sounds harsh. It sounds unloving. It sounds so judgmental. How can it be that, w that anybody should ever 
be removed from the very place where God, God's blessing is and where the goodness of God is to be enjoyed. It just sounds too judgmental. Now, friends, please hear me out. There is so much to say here. I had to cut my sermon. We're already going to go probably close to 50 minutes. And I had to cut out lots and lots. It's impossible to say everything that needs to be said when we talk about church discipline. In fact, one of the big things, and I'm not even going to touch on it today, is how church discipline ought to be implemented. Jesus tells us how it should be implemented. That is Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to go there today. I'm not going to even touch on it. I'm going to leave it to One. One will at some stage talk to you about how, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, church discipline, the, the process of how it ought to be implemented. What I want us to consider in this passage, because this is what 1 Corinthians 5 is about, as it also talks about the same subject, is I want us to consider the why question. Why is church discipline important? Why is it that when a professing believer who continues in unrepentant sin, why is it important for such a person to be removed from a fellowship, from a local church? Because I know that you're not necessarily from the outset convinced that it's really such a big deal. Paul thinks it's a big deal. He's going to spend the rest of the passage, verse 3 to 13, He's going to spend verse 3 to 13 trying to convince the church in Corinth, but also you guys here at Rooted, why it is necessary for a church to implement church discipline. Four reasons. Okay, we're going to look at four reasons given in verse 3 to 13. Four reasons why church discipline is necessary. The first one is this. Church discipline, friends, is necessary. Have a look there with me in verse 4 and verse 5. It is necessary for the sake of the offender. Church discipline is necessary for the sake of the offender. I'm going to read verse 4 to 5. You've got it there on the screen also and hopefully on your phones. Paul says this. He starts like this. He says, When you, that's the Christians in Corinth, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, i.e. when you gathered as the church, and my spirit is present, that's the Apostle Paul's spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you, this is the command, the instruction, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And you're sitting here thinking, what the heck does it mean to be delivered over to Satan? It's in the Bible. What does it mean to be delivered over to Satan? Well, here's what it means. It is crucial. You will not understand what those words mean if you didn't follow the story of the Old Testament. So allow me a moment just to remind ourselves of the story of the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Do you, have you heard the story before? In the beginning, God created all reality. He created man as the pinnacle of his creation, male and female, Adam and Eve. And God created them, and God gave them this garden, this place where they lived under His word, under His uh, authority, in the, the Garden of Eden, and there they enjoyed the good life. There they enjoyed the blessings of God in abundance. But what happened? Genesis chapter 3, the serpent came, Satan came, Satan lied to them. He said to them, no, 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 you don't have to listen to God. The good life can be found when you rebel against God. And so what did they do? Well, they rebelled against God. What happened? 
when they rebelled against God, when they rejected God's rule, God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God removed them from the garden. God placed them outside the garden. Friends, and this is so important for us to realize. When God did that, God didn't do that to destroy them, but to discipline them. What God was doing there, friends, in Genesis 3, as he placed Adam and Eve out of the garden, was God was placing them in the sphere of Satan. The area, the place outside of God's lordship, there where Satan's dominion is, and God was sending them there. So that they, removed from his lordship, removed from his blessings, outside of it, they can come to their senses. God is doing this, in a sense, as a last resort. He has warned them. He has shown them the good life. They rejected it because he loves them. He's putting them outside the garden so that there they can come to their senses. They can realize, but this is not the good life. The life separated from God so that they would come back in repentance and faith and come back to the Father's home. And then, of course, as the story goes on in the Old Testament, a thousand, thousands of years later, you find the nation of Israel. And now God has this new, bigger family, this community that are His people, and they are the nation of Israel. And similar to Adam and Eve, in the garden, they too are brought into the place of God, namely the promised land. They too, like Adam and Eve, are told to live under the lordship of God. They are given the law. And God promises them, doesn't He, that as they live under His word, just like Adam and Eve, there they will enjoy His blessing. That is the good life inside the promised land. But you probably heard the story before, what happened to Israel after countless warning after warning, just like with Adam and Eve, they rejected God's rule, they rejected God's word, and after warning them over and over the prophets, what did God do? He placed them outside of His presence. He took them in exile, took them to Babylon. Babylon, interestingly enough, both Old and New Testament, signifying the dominion of Satan. And God places them outside the garden, again, not to destroy them, but because He loves them. He's putting them there where they are in Babylon with these pagan kings so that they can come to their senses, so that they can come to the place where they realize, man, this is not the good life. We are idiots. The good life was when we listened to God and there, in relationship with God and with God's people, that was the good life. And God is putting them in exile so they can come to their senses and through repentance, through faith, return again to Him. Friends, that is the point of what Paul is saying here in verse 4 and in verse 5. That is what Paul is on about when he tells the church to deliver this man over to Satan. Because you see, friends, and I don't know if you realize this, the church, rooted and all other true churches around the world, the church is now the place where God is ruling. The church is the place where the blessings of God under the lordship of God can be enjoyed. And so Paul is giving this command to the church because he loves this person, this guy who is sleeping with his father's wife. Paul is saying, Listen, after over and over you've warned this guy, you've pleaded with him to come to his senses. If his heart is hardened, put him outside the church so that he can, in a sense, live there where Satan is ruling. So that he, yes, even if it means that he has to be broken, 
But so that like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, he can come to his senses in the faraway land and said, what did I do? It was way better in my father's house. And I'm going to return. I'm going to come to my father and I'm going to say, um, I'm sorry and I love you and I need you. Friends, that is, that is what that Paul is saying here. And, and I want us to pause for a moment. And I'm speaking to you at Rooted here. I want us to understand, friends, understand this truth. Because here's the thing. All of us, we are the descendants. All of us are the descendants of Adam and Eve. And because we are the descendants of Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve, we are a people who believe the lie of Satan. We constantly think, and I know I'm thinking this, and therefore I know that you're thinking this. We think that the good life is found there where I can be the captain of my own soul and the master of my own fate. I think that that is where I can find true happiness and contentment and joy. And I think that if I can be free from all the shackles of God's do's and don'ts, then it will be great. Then I'll be happy. But friends, there are two problems with that lie that we believe. The first problem is this. There is no such thing as absolute autonomy. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. You are either under God's rule, a servant of Him, or you are under the rule in the dominion of Satan, and you're actually a slave to Him. You're a, you're a servant to Him. And here's the problem, is that Satan's kingdom never, ever end well for you. It promises lots. The devil is a deceptive liar. He comes to you with a bunch of Beautiful promises. And he promises you that you can have contentment and joy, security and identity, but it's all, friends, empty promises. It is all empty promises and it always fails to deliver. It leaves one eventually feeling more hopeless. You bite the fruit that the devil promises to you and you don't feel better afterwards. You feel worse more hopeless, more broken. It destroys your own life physically, emotionally, spiritually. It destroys the people around you. That always happens. That is always the return on investment in Satan's kingdom. The second problem with us believing uh, that true freedom can be found apart from, uh, uh, you know, in, in rebellion against God. The second problem, friends, is that it's just never sustainable. Even if you do for a short while enjoy the good life, you think this is the good life, I can do what I want, say what I want, even if you think you're getting away with it, you're never getting away with it. Did you notice there in verse 5, there is the day of the Lord coming? There is a day coming when King Jesus is coming back and when all those who have rebelled against their Creator Precisely because he is holy, precisely because he's righteous. He is not only that he will, but he has to, because he's righteous. He will judge all those who have rebelled against his rule. And friends, therefore, because he loves us, therefore, verse 4 and verse 5. The point is, friends, God loves us so much. He loves those who are in a covenant relationship with him so much that he won't allow us to destroy ourselves. He will even go to the last resort of placing you outside of his blessing, outside of the community where his blessing is found, not to destroy you, but because he loves you. He wants you, like the prodigal son, to come to your senses there as you're sitting in the pigsty of life and say, I was an idiot. 
man, how could I think that I'm going to find joy and satisfaction and the good life here? I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to my father. That's the first reason, friends. The first reason why church discipline is necessary is the second one. Have a look with me in verse 6. It's not only for the sake of the offender, but church discipline is necessary for the sake of the church community. It's for the sake of the church community. Paul moves on to another Old Testament image there in verse 6. And Paul refers there back to the book of Exodus. And you probably, maybe you've heard the story before in, in, in Exodus, uh, specifically chapter 12. God's people, Israel, were in slavery under bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God finds a way to redeem them, to get them out of slavery. And what does God say in, in Exodus chapter 12? He says to them in Exodus, Exodus 12, verse 33 and 34, to, uh, to leave Egypt in haste. He tells them, don't even hang around. Take even your dough and just get out of there. Don't wait for the dough to be leavened. Just take it and run. Get out of there as quickly as you can. And friends, for that reason, all throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, leaven then. Leaven becomes symbolic. It becomes symbolic of all those things that should be left behind by God's redeemed people. Leaven becomes all those things pertaining to sin and unbelief. And this is why leaven is such a brilliant, brilliant image. I mean, my wife, and she's going to... Don't like me saying this, but my wife is like a beast in the kitchen. She's like brilliant. One of, one of the reasons why I love her and why I married her is because she's a brilliant cook, especially when it comes to baking. She's brilliant, brilliant at baking. I'm also an expert in the whole process because I'm the one who consumes whatever she bakes. And um, one thing that I've learned over the years, working really hard in the kitchen, um, is that yeast is a leavening agent. It causes the dough to, to, to rise, of course, by fermentation. But what is striking, friends, and that is, that is what Paul is on about there in verse 6, is that it only takes a little yeast to really change and transform the whole lump. You just put in a bit of yeast and it, it, it affects literally everything. And that is Paul's point there in verse 6. He's, he's telling us that the unrepentant sin, the unbelief of one person of a little yeast of one person will affect and spoil the whole believing community rooted can i ask you do you believe that do you really believe that that the unrepentant sin in a life of a professing believer is not only causing personal harm to that person but it's harming all of you do you believe that you see, we often hear people, even Christians, say, uh, whenever you confront them over their sin, you'll often hear people say, um, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. What has it got to do with you? It's, my life is my business, and I can live my life the way I want. What verse 6 is saying, if you're a Christian, that's absolute nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. You're not allowed to say that sin Sin affects the whole community. Friends, the sin of the individual affects the whole community in three ways. Firstly, it affects the whole community in that, as we said earlier, personal sin ends up in brokenness. Whenever I follow the way of Satan, of self, because that's one and the same thing, 
it ends up destroying me personally, um, at a physical way, in an emotional way, in a spiritual way, and the brokenness becomes the problem of the community. It is the, the, the church community that will have to spend time and energy and resources, and they love to do that, but just realize that it's never personal because somebody is picking up, uh, picking up um, the brokenness afterwards. But then the individual sin has the tendency, friends, and this is scary, but to subtly corrupt the rest of the community. You see, it's one person, and we're not talking about making a mistake, falling in sin. That's true of all Christians, isn't it? We all mess up all the time. But the ongoing hardness of heart, choosing the path of sin, reveling in sin, it, it, it spreads like another analogy, like gangrene, and it, and it affects the thinking and the spiritual temperature in the whole community. But then thirdly, and probably the biggest reason why individual sin affects the whole church, and, and this we need to hear, friends, the New Testament gives us this warning over and over again, is that the sin of one or two quenches the spirit. It quenches the spirit. It grieves the spirit. It affects the extent to which the blessing and the favor of the Lord rests on a local church. Isn't that scary? That you as rooted, you can do, you can come up with all the best ideas of how to do church. You can have the best preacher in the world. Uh, you, you can have all the things working out perfectly. And the Lord's favor, and we see this actually in, in the book of Revelation, in the letters. You, you see exactly this point made there. Everything can work in a worldly way, man, brilliant. But, the, but Jesus has left the building. Jesus has left the building because, and he says there, because there is sin in your church that you, the church, haven't dealt with. You're not, you don't realize that this is damaging all of you. And so, and so can, I, can I plead with you, if you're sitting here today and you're part of Rooted as local church and you are a professing believer and this is your local church, yet you are living in sin, you have chosen the path not of following Jesus, but actually you're a hypocrite. You're not following Jesus. You are following sin and self. Realize that your sin is not merely your problem. Can I implore you to love the rest of the community enough to repent of whatever it is? Can I plead with you not to play and flirt with sin? Instead, confess it, turn away from it, seek the help that is among you in the church. Seek accountability when you struggle. When you struggle with a particular sin, there are people here that will love you enough that they will walk that road with you for you to, 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 to beat it. Can I plead with the rest of you, Ruth, to don't turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin in your midst. It is literally your problem. It is your problem. Speak the truth, but yes, Ephesians 4, speak it in love. Pray for those struggling and caught up in sin. Support one another. Help one another. And if it continues, talk to your elders about it and then they will... Um, Consider Matthew 18 and what that has to say in this regard. Here's the third reason, friends. The third reason why it is so necessary for us to, why church discipline is necessary. Not really a feel-good sermon, is it? Sorry, it's what God is, wants you to hear this morning. The third reason is this. First, then, it is for the sake of the offender. Secondly, it's for the sake of the whole church community. Thirdly, then, 
Church discipline is necessary for the sake of Jesus. It's for the sake of Jesus. Have a look there with me in verse 7 and verse 8. Paul says, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. So he's slightly mixing up his metaphors here, but he's saying, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are already unleavened. Remember 1 verse 2, already holy, become holy. You've already been, verse, uh, verse 7 there, you've already, you're, you're already unleavened. Cleanse yourself from leaven, uh, therefore. But why? Here's the thing I want us to see. Why? Verse 7, verse 8. Why is it so important for them to cleanse out the old leaven, i.e. to remove this guy of verse 1 from, the, from among them? The reason he gives us here is the second half of verse 7, and that is for Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Friends, that's the gospel. Back to Exodus chapter 12. This is the gospel according to Exodus. Remember the story there? God's people were in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. God provided a way of redemption. What was that? He told them, Exodus 12, uh, for each family, take a lamb and slaughter the lamb. Eat the flesh of that lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorposts of your houses. And when I'm coming in judgment on Egypt, as I come to your house, there where the blood of the lamb is covering you and your family, I will come and I will pass over you. Hence the Passover. You, you will miss my judgment and I will destroy your enemies and you will then be redeemed. And friends, the amazing thing that Paul says here is he says, the astonishing claim is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus says in the words of John, I'm the lamb of God who've come uh, to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb and he was sent and therefore he went to the cross. And on the cross, friends, hear the gospel again, Jesus was slaughtered. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross so that his blood could cover and protect God's people in order that the judgment of God can pass over us and in the process, our enemies, the real enemies, namely sin and Satan and death, can be destroyed through the slaughtering of the Lamb. And that is what Jesus achieved. And so notice with me, have a look again there at verse 7. There's one word there that is really crucial. Paul does not say, Christ, the Passover lamb. Paul is saying, Christ, our Passover lamb. Can I ask you as you're sitting here today, can you say that? Is Jesus your Passover lamb? Not the Passover lamb, the one that uh, other people have told me, the church has told me that, but he is my Passover lamb. Have you ever, dear friend, can I ask you, have you ever come to that place where you have come to realize that you are enslaved to sin? You are enslaved to Satan. You are enslaved to death. You've come to the place where you realize that and you've come to the realization that you can do nothing about it. Have you ever been to that place where you say, I can't do anything about this and I realize that that is precisely why Jesus had to die in order to redeem me? If no, can I invite you this morning again? Can I plead with you? Realize this. Can I plead with you to turn away from self? The word that the Bible used to turn away from self is the word repent. 
and turn to Christ. That is the word in the Bible, faith. So it's repentance and faith. Turn away from self, turn away to Christ. Don't think that you can you redeem yourself because you can't. Realize that only Jesus can do and so trust in him. And if you do, here's the wonderful promise that the judgment of God will pass over you and know this, that then, then you are redeemed. You are already redeemed from sin, Satan, and ultimately death one day. But if you're sitting here and you say, yes, yes, you are. I've done that. Yes, I've turned away from self. I've turned to Christ. I've done that. Christ is my Passover lamb. Can I encourage you, please don't forget that. Christian, don't forget that. Preach that to your own heart every day. Christ is my Passover lamb. Christ is my Passover lamb. Don't forget that. Don't forget, friends, that it cost God his son to save you from your sins. Don't forget that it cost Jesus his own life to save you and me as Christians from our sins. Why would we go back and flirt with it? Why would I go after he has cleansed me, go and jump back into the mud pool of sins if Christ, my Passover lamb, was sacrificed precisely for those very things that I continue to play with, flirt with, revel in? Fourthly then, last thing. Fourth reason, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, why church discipline is necessary. It's not only for the sake of the offender or for the church. It's not only uh, also... Uh, for the sake of Jesus and for his glory and for what he's done. But fourthly then, it's for the sake of our Christian duty. It's for our Christian duty. Have a look with me. I think verse 9 to 13 is massively, massively important. I'm, I find myself so often opening up 1 Corinthians 5 and looking at verse 9 to 13 when I try and disciple other Christians. And so please, and this is also very important if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, have a look with me there at verse 9 to 13. Have a look at verse 9. Paul refers to, there to another letter that he wrote. It's a letter that we don't have. We don't know what's happened to it. But a previous letter that he's written to the church in Corinth in verse 9. A letter where he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Here's the problem. The church in Corinth got that first letter. They read it, but they didn't understand what Paul was saying. They didn't get what he was saying, and so he's clarifying now what he actually meant then when he said don't associate with sexually immoral people because they didn't get it. And so verse 10, he clarifies, and Paul says, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world. In other words, the unbelievers, or for that matter, the greedy of this world, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. Paul is saying, then, well, then you'll need to go and live somewhere on the moon. Or you'll have to go and, they're always, for some reason, all the sects in America go and find somewhere trailers in the middle of Utah. Have you noticed? All the sects originate somewhere in Utah, in the middle of nowhere, on a ranch. Or in the Afrikaners, often in Urania. So you get this everywhere, okay? You get that everywhere. Paul is saying, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would you want to, like, go and say, ooh, bad, I'm going to separate myself from the world? It's impossible, says Paul, for you to do that. Now, what I meant, verse 11, is this. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or a sister, someone who professes to be a believer, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality, or for that matter, greed, 
always an, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Hard words. Why? Why should they be harsher and harder with the other Christians than with the non-Christians? Well, the answer is given to us there in verse 12, the last verse. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And so, purge the evil person from among you. He says it again. Friends, the principle here is a straightforward one. Let's say that you speak to a friend and your friend tells you about, so the friend tells you about her cousin's sister and how her cousin's sister is having an affair even though she's married. So you hear the story. Now you might not agree with what your friend's cousin's sister is doing but there's a sense in which you, you can't really do anything about it. You don't know her. It's not your business. You have no right to address the issue. But what if it's your own sister? What if it's your sister uh, and she's got children and you know that she is actually having an affair with another guy even though she's married? What then? You see, then her actions affect your whole family's well-being. Then it is your business. It is your business, and you not only have the right to address the issue, it is your duty. It is your duty then to address the issue. That is the point, friends, of, um, of 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 13. And friends, how terribly mixed up do we get with this? How horribly wrong do we get this truth? of verse 9 to 13. We get this exactly the other way around, don't we? If we're honest, let's just quickly name and shame ourselves as Christians. We, friends, are known to be the people who are judgmental to those on the outside, always having something to say, look at what they, how they behave, look at what they do, but we are massively slack with one another. That is precisely the reason why the world thinks we're hypocrites. Because we constantly, and, and just think for a moment how ridiculous it is. They never said that Jesus is Lord. They never said that. They don't have the spirit. Yet we want to constantly say to the world, oh, look at this, look how terrible what you're doing. Meanwhile, there, is, there are the things of, um, of verse 11 that is rife in our midst, and we turn a blind eye to those things. And for the, that reason, for that reason, the world often would say that we are hypocrites. Now, now, don't get me wrong with this. Paul will later, in 1 Corinthians, you will get to this in 1 Corinthians 7, and then in the book 2 Corinthians, he says it again, Paul does believe that there are times and instances when we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There are certain instances, one of those instances which, that you'll see in 1 Corinthians 7 is when it comes to marriage, Okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, married, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that Christians ought not to marry unbelievers. Okay, so another, I'm just throwing out the hand grenades. Ona I, I can wipe up the, the mess later. But the point is that there are certain instances where Christians should not be in that kind of fellowship, kind of partnership, certain ways with unbelievers. But that does not mean, friends, that we can and should separate ourselves from the world and just stay away in our holy huddles 
away from the big bad world. No, we have a duty. Our duty is to be witnesses in the world. And so can I encourage you, Christian, can I encourage you to call, yes, call unbelievers to repentance and faith. But please, let's stop judging the outsiders. Let's stop judging the outsiders, knowing, verse 13, that God will judge those on the outside. All right. As we do that, as we do that then, can we not be those who judge the outsiders, but can I encourage you, and I know that this is potentially a, a, a difficult, controversial thing to say, but can we be better at judging one another? Well, that is what the text is saying. You ought to judge one another. I'm slightly going off script, and I, and I know I'm late, but we're almost done. Please don't, please don't be one of those Christians that say, but Jesus said, do not judge, Matthew 7. Okay, so let's just park that once and for all. What Jesus means when he says, do not judge, is he's talking to the hypocrite, the one who wants to say to somebody else, repent of your sin, but he's not willing to take the plank out of his own eye. The problem there is one of hypocrisy. If you're a hypocrite and you are living in unrepentant sin, then do not judge. But if you've taken out the plank out of your, out of your own eye, if you have repented from sin, you're not perfect, you're not nailing it, but you are sincerely following Jesus, then if the plank is out of your eye, please take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Love him enough then to do that. And so can we be those who will in fact judge in this loving way one another? Of course, under the leadership and the authority in the local church, i.e. the elders. Can I ask you, Christians sitting here today at Rooted, what is it for you as, as you think personally of your own life? What are the things in verse 11 that you are guilty of maybe? Sexual immorality, greed, oh greed is a biggie, we often go on about the sex stuff, but we very, very, uh, we don't say lots about the greed in a place like Pretoria. Are you an, an, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler? Uh, notice there that he is described, it's somebody for whom it is the state of being. He's not saying that you fall every now in sexual sin or in greed, but you hate it and you repent from it and you turn back to Jesus. He is describing somebody, this is who they are. They say they follow Jesus, but they are an idolater. They are a swindler. This is who they are. They walk this road of this particular sin. If that is you, can I ask you again, dear Christian, remember that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for you. Repent of the sin. Return. The Father will have you back again and again and again. Return to the Father's home. But if someone is, if this is you, or if someone in your midst is doing that, speak to your elders. Keep loving them. Keep loving them even if it means to love them to the extent to, to remove them from your midst. Because that, that is what God is telling us in this passage. And I'm, and I'm finishing with that. I'm going to close with that, friends. The takeaway of all of this is simply this. Just to, to summarize it as I pray for us. The takeaway of, of all of this, friends, is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12. Rooted belongs to God. It is it is not Ones church, it's not the elders' church, it's not your church, it is Jesus' church. Thank the Lord it's his church because he will build his church. 
But the church rooted belongs to God, and therefore we can't decide how we're going to run it. God decides how he's going to run his church. Remember 1 verse 2, that rooted, that you, all of you sitting here with all of the mess in your life, as in our church, that if you trust in Jesus, you have been made holy, rooted. But because you've been made holy, God calls you by his spirit. He calls you to now live as the holy ones. And know this, and now we're in 1 Corinthians 5, as I summarize and close, that when we fail to walk in holiness, know that God will discipline us. He will discipline us in many different ways, and he will even maybe discipline you in this way of 1 Corinthians 5 by removing you from the very community that you've come to love, that has become your friends and your source of life that God might do that. But please know when God does that, He's not doing that because He hates you. God is doing it because He loves you. God disciplines us, friends, because He loves us. He loves us so much that He doesn't want you to wreck your own life. He doesn't want you to wreck the people around you. He doesn't want you to defame the name of our elder brother, Jesus. And He doesn't want you to... um, forsake your very duty of being a witness that is not being an offense to offense to the to the outside world but that you will be someone who will be a fragrance the aroma of christ so that the outsiders would say man i want to come to know this jesus i want to come back to the father's home let me pray for us heavenly father i'm uh, absolutely um, aware of the fact that um, these words in 1 Corinthians 5 aren't easy words. And even as we hear it and we can see it, yet still even those of us who know you and have your spirit, we kick and scream against it. Oh Lord, forgive us for the way that even as those who can say that the Passover lamb was sacrificed for us, we still, like Adam and Eve and Israel, so often reject your authority over our lives. Please, Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you will help us to remember Christ, our Passover Lamb, especially when we have messed up, that we can remember that Jesus has already redeemed us from sin, Satan, and death. But then, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, as we remember Christ, our Passover Lamb, I pray that that will supernaturally transform every single one of us sitting here to be those, the sanctified ones, and that we will live as the holy ones. We pray this, Lord, for your glory and honor ultimately. But we also pray that because that is the good life. That is the good life now here in 2017 in Pretoria, the life under the lordship of King Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.